Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, the future of timber harvesting in good hands. Uh, We specialise in the harvest of hardwood plantation across the northern regions of Tasmania. We employ some highly skilled individuals that are very specific to their roles and their skill sets. They know exactly what they're doing and how to protect and conserve and produce at the same time. And new life for an old pulp mill in Tasmania's northwest. This was a, a site where there was buildings that had been left somewhat derelict for 10 years or so, a bit over a decade, but the potential was there, the structure of the buildings is there, roadworks, the infrastructure, the concrete, everything was here, it only needed dressing up again. Yeah, a tour of the refurbished pulp mill in northwest Tasmania coming up in the family company with a positive outlook on future timber harvesting. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday, which does mean Richard Bailey and the livestock markets later in the program. As well, we'll have a look at the big drops in the price of goat meat. And we'll also see how the lobster prices are looking as the Christmas season looms. And, of course, a check on the weather. And we'll take your thoughts on any issue via the text line 0438 936 is that number. 0438 936 And just before we start the program today, I've got to tell you that the ABC Giving Tree total at the moment stands at $199,199. Would you believe it? Uh, so just a, a little bit over $800 to get to the magic $200,000 figure. Reckon we can do it before the end of the program? We'll give it a go anyway. So if you uh, wanted to make a donation, go to it. Uh, the ABC Giving Tree online. See if we can get it up near that uh, $200,000 mark. First up today, Cattle Australia, the new advocacy group for more than 40,000 of Australia's grass-fed cattle producers, says it will be focused and nimble when dealing with industry issues. At the first board meeting this week, Queensland-based David Foote was elected as chair alongside six board members. David Foote has only recently stepped back as head of Australian County Choice, which operates Australia's largest vertically integrated beef supply chain and also a small-scale property in southeast Queensland. David Foote explains to Amy Phillips why the expensive and distracting restructure was required. I think Cattle Council Australia worked out that its advocacy program needed a refresh. The state farming organisation history was, was potentially holding it back from achieving its national advocacy plan. And, you know, it's a huge movement for an organisation to stand aside. You know, from 1979, they've been advocating on behalf of the industry. And I think it's really important to recognise the fact that they wished to stand aside to give a new entity a chance to succeed as a representative body. Unfortunately, the restructure has taken years. It's taken a lot of energy and focus away from grass-fed beef issues. How will you be bringing your wealth of experience with Australian Country Choice, which was a vertically integrated beef company? You had both grazing properties, feedlots, and as a processor. How are you going to bring those skills to unite the industry? Amy, fortunately, this is not about me, about David Foote. I have a really exciting cohort board of directors that cover almost every aspect of the industry we're in. Yes, ACC has given me the opportunity to go from the breeding property through to the retail counter, which is which is a really important part of understanding the whole supply chain. But each of the directors have special niche experiences and opportunities to bring to the table. And I think as a collective, and as a very, I guess, much more nimble collective, we're down to a, down to a board of eight. 
uh, which may or may not grow to to nine in the future. I just think we're actually going to be able to be able to be more focused and maybe more directional for the time being. How will you unite the industry, though? How are you going to truly represent uh, the tens of thousands of grass-fed beef producers? That's a really, really good question. But the, the, the first priority focus, and let's say, Amy, the Border Cattle Australia is only 22 hours old at the moment. So we, we still, still need a little bit of breathing room because everything's a priority. But the one thing that came out of our initial board meeting yesterday was the need desire and the want to unite those 40,000 odd cattle producers across Australia for us to represent them in their advocacy at national levels. How will your group be funded so that you're robust against the likes of your other advocacy groups within the beef chain like the Australian Lot Feeders Association and the Australian Meat Industry Council? It all comes back to memberships based on value propositions. So we need to be able to show the, the people who are out there who haven't chosen to participate in membership of Bird Cattle Council or their SFO, but now that they want to invest in Cattle Australia because they're seeing value, value for money. The other organisations, it's tough out there for everybody. There's a high cost movement to try and cover the continent's largest Australia. And with a membership potential base of 40,000, it's not a cheap process. But we have no silver bullets. We have no gold lining. But we're there. We have sufficient funds to at least get the process started and rolled. But we'll also be reaching to a wider audience. We'll be looking at the RDCs in terms of some program funding where practicable. We'll certainly be looking to seek sponsorship to help it, to help us on this journey. What's going to be Cattle Australia's first issue that you'll address? first issue to address is to harness and unite the 40,000 producers out there at the moment. Your board's not worried about the biosecurity issues, which are only ramping up. We've only just heard about lumpy skin becoming closer again to Australia. Is biosecurity on your radar? Biosecurity should be on the radar of everybody involved in the ruminant industry um, or the cloven-footed industry for FMD. It's certainly a discussion point, but we alone aren't going to change the focus of that. But in concert, this process has been involved in cattle council before. It's involved in every peak council in discussions with government and Animal Health Australia. So we are very much at the table in that journey and we're advocating clearly on behalf of our, of our members. And where to here for your group then? When can members expect to see Cattle Australia uh, lobbying on their behalf and, and you know banging on doors in Canberra? Well, it was Brisbane last night, Amy. Canberra's re-meeting Thursday, Friday. They probably haven't got room for us yet. And we're not ready because we haven't got a clear message yet of what we are requiring um, from the from the federal government. But when we have, well, then we'll be lined up on the door first thing in the morning. There's, of course, a legal battle also underway, uh, brought on by Cattle Producers Australia. What bearing might it have on Cattle Australia? I'm not expecting it to have a bearing because whilst we maintain the ACN, that was a previous dislocation. We're sensitive to it and aware of it and we'll be trying to meet with all those producers out there to, I guess, sort it and settle it to go forward. And hopefully they become members. Ideally, they will want to become members, Amy, yes. That's David Foote, the inaugural chair of Cattle Australia, talking there to Amy Phillips after the first board meeting of the new organisation. 
Well, rock lobster prices have had a tough couple of years, but according to ANZ Commodity Data, the market has slowly but steadily continued to recover. Prices are up on last year, but still not back to pre-pandemic levels. Seafood retailer and exporter Ferguson Australia Group's managing director, Andrew Ferguson, says southern rock lobster prices have continued to improve. A number of fishermen have stopped fishing too. There's sort of, sort of they caught a fair bit of their quota, and they've sort of decided to wait for the price to come up, and uh, and that sort of does help a little bit with making more demand. Um, you know, the price has come up a bit too. That you know, the beach price has come up. You know, around the depends what size they are, but between sixty and seventy-five dollars has been the beach price, which if we look at this time last year is quite a bit higher. So that that obviously does you know impact on the retail pricing as well. Do you think the prices for lobster this year have been better than what you were expecting compared to last year? I think so. I think it's fair to say that. I think it's been a bit higher than than, than I was expecting. And, you know, the market seems to be more fluid. COVID did play a big role in last year's marketplace with shutdowns and stops and starts and restaurants closing down. All that coming back, all those things opening up now, I think that's all part of it as well. Not only in Australia, but in the Asian region as well. If we look to that market, and I look think back to this time last year and uh, what was open and what was closed, it, it, it was difficult times. What do you expect for prices going into 2023? I think some of the marketing outside of China that we've done, being able to do sort of kicking in a little bit as other other destinations. Um, obviously, the local market's stronger than it used to be with a, with a better pricing. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of different factors that have that have helped the price slowly increase to what they were a couple of years ago to when uh, when you know the China bans hit so yes it has gradually increased and it potentially you know I can't see why it can't just slowly increase uh, but it takes time uh, as we look outside of China do you think some of those emerging markets will continue to grow I think so yeah no we're obviously traveling now since you know the pandemics eased in the uh, Western world uh, means we can attend trade shows that we we couldn't have and visit visit other markets. You know we we ourselves have got other products that are value added product that we marketing to these new markets, which gives higher value. Uh, you know the live lobster market really is centric to Asia and uh, China. Uh, the West the Western world looks for packaged product, uh, more convenience and those sort of you know it's got to be a quality product. And I think you know the, the industry are becoming accredited eventually with MSC. Marine Stewardship Council will no doubt help us find these niche markets that will pay more for the product. So, you know, it is a unique product, Southern Rock Lobster. There's only a certain amount available. It's fished very lowly under the quota system we've got, very conservatively, I should say. And, uh, you know, we've got, to, we've got to attain the best value we can for the product. Managing Director of Ferguson Australia Group, Andrew Ferguson. The commodity update released by ANZ suggested emerging markets combined with a fall in global supply have helped strengthen prices. Associate Director of Agribusiness Research at ANZ, Madeline Swan, says the industry can expect steadier prices to continue. It's no surprise to anyone that it's been a really horrid couple of years, two and a half, three years for the Australian rock lobster industry and this is just a chance to do a bit of a stock take of where producers are at, what sort of prices they're receiving and what we're really seeing is that they've done a really great job at finding alternative markets, of finding some solid market to send their rock lobster to. And what we're seeing really is an industry that is now almost all upside and none of the downsides that played havoc with it for the past few years. So what new markets have emerged to replace the Chinese market? There, 
They're all still fairly in their infancy, but there are a lot all across Asia really marketing rock lobster, not just as rock lobster, but also as a luxury seafood good, so the sort of good that will compete with king crab and snow crab and some of those other really high-end crustaceans and seafoods. Um, so going into Japan, Singapore, South Korea, all those sort of areas that we would think of as being normal trade routes for Australian goods, the rock lobster industry has done really well to start establishing themselves in those markets, which, which bodes really well for the future. The prices we're seeing now are really a return to the days before the China boom. So the China boom was some sort of anomaly, not so much as the normal. So this isn't, it's not unheard of for the industry to, to be receiving the prices that they are at the moment. It's just not as great as it was when China was in the market. So it's, it's all very sustainable and manageable for them. So we're not back at the yeah. highs, but we're certainly not no. at the lows. No, that's it. We were putting something like over 90% of our exports into China and we were obviously overexposed. So they've done a really good job to, to, to find some new markets and, and, and diversify. Do you expect the demand to China to return at some point? That's a really difficult one. It is an issue that falls really in the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Chinese government. I would hope so in the future. I would hope that those relations will soar and improve and, and that that rock lobster export market to China will recover. Um, but even without that, as I said, what we're seeing is that they found a real a real price floor and their stability in their, in their market now. That's Associate Director of Agribusiness Research at ANZ, Madeline Swan, speaking with Elsie Adamo about the rock lobster prices improving slowly and they continue to recover. We also heard from Ferguson, Australia's Group Managing Director, Andrew Ferguson. Might not be the time for it now, but we'll talk about drought preparations in just a moment. Breakfast. The current Scottish Parliament are considering offering an apology. With Rick Goddard. Professor Douglas Ezzy. Contemporary paganism and witchcraft is fascinating. It celebrates the role of women. The accusations against them were completely fabricated. Well, we had witchcraft laws here in Australia. Victoria decriminalised witchcraft in 2005. Rick Goddard. What? And Northern Territory in 2013. Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And uh, those giving tree numbers sneaking up, 199,449 at the moment. Go to it if uh, we can get it above 200,000 by the end of the program. That would be lovely. Uh, Giving Tree Online, ABC Giving Tree is where you can go and uh, donate. You probably can't imagine it at the moment, but one day we'll be faced with a drought again. Felicity Richards has some heartbreaking memories of droughts on her family farm on Flinders Island. She left at the chance to join a program that will help her become a leader when it comes to making communities resilient to natural disasters like drought. It's interesting. I have one memory as a child of helping in the sheep yards and... I think we must have been drafting out, well, I assume we were probably mouthing the sheep, which means that you're going through assessing how good their teeth are because only an animal with good teeth is going to survive um, when the feed gets uh, minimal. And, you know, I knew even at what must have been quite a young age that we were selecting the ones that were going to be taken away and, and euthanized, and the ones that we were going to keep because of because of the drought at the time. On the whole, though, on Flinders Island, I think we've been really lucky. The last really bad drought was 2006, 
and I wasn't living on the farm at that time, but I know my parents my parents went through that and their stories about it and about what they went through and what their staff had to go through with them. So I know they were spending around about $10,000 a week feeding animals. Oh. And, yeah, it, it's... It's hard to imagine, and I know one of their staff members whose job was mostly to go out and feed sheep and euthanise sheep that, that weren't doing well. They were enormously worried about his, the, the toll on him as well as on the landscape and, and on everything. So drought's definitely been a part of our story. Um, we've been fortunate that it's probably been a much smaller part than it has been for some others. But it, you've got some understanding of the really devastating and, and quite long-term impact that droughts can have on people, on communities. Yes, and, and we have, I'm trying to think what year it was, it might have been 2015, late 2015, um, we were starting to worry that it wasn't going to rain and on Flinders Island in particular, although I suppose it's applicable for the whole of Tasmania too, you have to be really wary that, that to get livestock off the animal off the island, sorry, there's only the boat, and the boat only has so much room, so you can't all wait till the last moment to start selling your stock. You have to be quite strategic about offloading, and so at that point, it must have been December, um, January, we started to offload stock pretty fast and buy in pellets for our young cattle uh, in preparation. So we were very lucky. Um, we got some fantastic rains at the end of January, which sort of saved us at that point. Um, but we were certainly starting to implement our drought planning at that time. And I think my husband and I both know that if we farm, then sooner or later we're going to experience a drought event and we just need to be aware of that. Well, that segues beautifully into the next thing. Tell me about this drought resilience program that you recently played a part in. Yeah, so I was very fortunate. I applied to be part of this, this program and the program was really teaching us about understanding leadership in under, cha- under challenging conditions. So drought as the example in this instance, but really understanding how you play a part um, and however big or small that part might be. It was Really eye-opening to be a participant in that because it taught me a lot about myself but also a lot about understanding what other people might go through when you're under those kind of trying circumstances. My name's Philippa Woodhill. I'm the Director of Partnerships at the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation. The Drought Resilience Leadership Development Program is a national initiative that has seen a community-based leadership program rolled out in 12 different regions across the country. One of those regions being uh, northeast Tasmania. We find that people are already resilient and it's about how we can amplify that throughout a region. Angela Driver, I'm the CEO at Tasmanian Leaders and we run a range of, uh, run a range of leadership programs across Tasmania and have been really fortunate and privileged to be able to work with the Australian Rural Leaders Foundation on the Drought Resilience Program. 
for the East Coast and Flinders Island. Yeah, I had the really good fortune of working alongside Paul Ryan from the Australian Resilience Centre to facilitate the program. So we had three days down at Spring Bay Mill and then another two days up on the East Coast and me and Paul led them through uh, activities, uh, conversations, uh, teaching them about resilience and leadership. Drought doesn't just impact farmers, it impacts their families, it impacts the community around them. So we were really looking at how do we need to be adaptable uh, and you know people in regional areas know this very well, they're constantly adapting but how can we prepare now for some of the inevitabilities that are coming around uh, climate change and adaptation. Felicity, do you have plans in place to work with the community in these times? Just thinking of the leadership aspect of that course as well. Yeah, so taking it outside just our personal experience and into the community. Mm. It's something that I'm, yeah, I'm really thinking about how I can most, like, be of most service to the community, if you like. One of the other hats that I wear is I'm the chair of an organisation called Farm Safe Australia. I'm hoping to use some of the skills I've learnt to come to that and think how can we support people so that they can face those challenges safely. Farmer Felicity Richards talking there to Meg Powell about helping her community become more resilient to disasters like droughts when they turn up. And you also heard from Resilience Project facilitators Angela Driver and Philippa Woodhill. Well, let's go to Wairia in eastern Victoria right now because a program run by Topsoils, Landcare and East Gippsland Catchment Management Authority caused a bit of a stir among farmers there last week. Peter Somerville went along. Here at Wairiwa, between Nauanaua and Orbost in East Gippsland, farmers have gathered in the local hall. They're huddling around a small plastic container, all in the name of improving their properties. They bury dung, they let water into the soil, they move the soil around and, you know, encourage more earthworms. People just seem to be wanting them. Penny Gray is the Far East Victoria Landcare and Topsoils facilitator. She says the farmers here are getting excited about dung beetles. They're really keen to um, diversify their species and get a greater range across the seasons because each species of beetle is active at a particular time or night or day. So, yeah, it's, they're fascinating. But here at Wairiwa today, farmers are learning the nuances of trapping dung beetles and breeding them in nurseries on their farms. Penny says that's a relatively new development. We're just encouraging everyone to give it a go. Um, and like we said, we might do a dung beetle capture bus trip. Who knows? <laughs> Is that on the cards? Oh, hopefully. You've got to think big. <laughs> if you think about your classic uh, sheep or cattle property, there's a lot of dung being produced every day. If it weren't for the dung beetles, that dung would remain on the surface. It wouldn't be being incorporated into the soil, so you're losing all of the rich organic matter. And you're also providing a fantastic breeding ground for flies and also gastrointestinal nematodes. The dung beetles incorporate the dung into the soil and suppress pest and parasite life cycles. That's Dr Russ Barrow. He's the presenter today and a researcher with Eco Insects. 
It's so encouraging when you come to these events. The enthusiasm of the participants is infectious and people often say I'm an enthusiastic presenter but it's because of the, you know, the infectious uh, enthusiasm that I get from them. Uh, dung beetles are just good. I mean, there's, people are always saying but they're an imported species. Is there any negative side effect? And everyone mentions the cane toad. Uh, dung beetles are just good from, from you know, day one. They've been carefully selected to operate on the dung of introduced animals, sheep, cattle, horses, and don't interfere with uh, uh, other ecosystems. Part of today you are focusing on building nurseries for dung beetles. Can you tell me about that? What is a dung beetle nursery? How would you build one? What do you do with it? Sure. So a, a dung beetle nursery is a, uh, a reduced number of beetles, typically 100 to 200 beetles that we would place into a one square metre container. Uh, typically there we're taking an IBC, an intermediate bulk container, chopping it in half to produce a container that we place soil in and that becomes a home for dung beetles for anything up to 12 months. So we would take that uh, container, the IBC, um, and we would place a colony of beetles, as I say, typically 100 to 200 beetles, feed them. In that container they would continue to breed and you look all things going to plan, at the end of the uh, season we might have a tenfold increase. So those 100 beetles would turn into 1,000, 200 to 2,000. So rather than spending the money on buying in large amounts of beetles, you can invest that time into growing them yourself on your property. Jared Rush and Aminia Hep have travelled from Goongra today. They're trying to reintroduce dung beetles at their property after the bushfires. Last year when we moved back to Goongra we bought a small herd of dairy cows and have noticed that there just aren't any dung beetles so it's been a problem we've been talking about for a while. And what is the problem with that? Well the cow dung just sits on top of the grass and doesn't break down very quickly at all. It just sits there for months sometimes and it makes it a lot harder for the grass to grow back and the fertility. Um, And what have you learnt today? What will you do after this? Well, we're going to set up a dung beetle nursery and uh, build up um, the species that we have been given and then we'll be able to reintroduce them back into our paddocks and our cell grazing for our cows and um, hopefully from there we'll be also um, able to spread them around town. Um, but one of the other things that we learned today was how to, how to trap them when we're out um, travelling around uh, from different farms and um, so that we can identify what species they are and then bring them back and um, hopefully we can get you know six to a dozen different species going um, in Goongara again. Is that something you can see yourself doing? Do you think you'll have dung beetle trapping holidays or go for dung beetle drives? <laughs> Do you think that's part of your future now? I think it definitely could be. We might not go specifically on those holidays but we'll just bring the trap along whenever we go anywhere probably. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll let you um, get out in the rain and back yeah. to Goongra. Fabulous. Okay. Thanks, Thanks very mate. much. Yeah, sounds like a different sort of a holiday. Amina Hep and Jared Roosh sending that report from Peter Somerville at the Wairiwa Hall in Eastern Victoria talking about dung beetles. We have gone past the $200,000 mark in the Giving Tree Appeal. I'll uh, give you details in just a moment. But still to come on the country, our timber harvest company future-proofing its business and we'll check the livestock markets with Richard, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Police are trying to piece together what led to a shooting rampage on Queensland's Western Downs, which claimed the lives of two police officers, a civilian and three 
three suspects. The head of wellbeing support for Tasmania's first responders says more than 10 of the officers who responded to the Hillcrest tragedy in the state's northwest last year are still off work. It's been almost a year since six children lost their lives when a jumping castle at the primary school was lifted into the air. Three brand new cars were stolen in Devonport last night, one of which was used in a ram raid at a service station in Railton. About 100 firefighters are continuing to battle a blaze that's threatening lives and homes north of Perth. Aerial support's been sent to assist ground crews fighting the fire between Cervantes and Jurian Bay. And the legalised cannabis party says it's thrilled Victorian voters have elected two of its members to parliament for the first time. The Electoral Commission has today finalised results from last month's state election, with the Greens picking up four seats in the Upper House, legalised cannabis two, and Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party's also secured a seat for the first time. For Bulletin at One. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Belinda House joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Belinda. Uh, good afternoon. And plenty of rain about. Yeah, look, we've seen our showers right across the state uh, yesterday afternoon through the overnight period. Uh, but look, not as much falling across the, the north and heavy, some quite heavy falls through the east and southeast. In the 24 hours to 9am, the highest we picked up was 81 millimetres at Lewis Hill, which is just a, a little north and northwest of uh, Swansea there. Swansea itself, 69 millimetres. Little Swanport, 55 millimetres and Tea Tree, 51 millimetres. Since uh, 9am, with those uh, showers continuing, since Patrick Head and Grey has picked up a further 7mm and Friendly Beaches uh, 6mm. But look, those showers are easing while we're still seeing them across most of the state, expecting it to remain uh, mostly fine across the uh, central north and the northwest, but with showers elsewhere. Now, rainfall totals yet to come. Uh, 1 to 5mm is probably all we're going to get on top of the showers we've already had about the east south and central parts. Elsewhere perhaps uh, 0 to 1, so you know, really just concentrated about the east, south and central parts now, and much less than what we've already seen. The winds are fairly uh, fresh and gusty southwest to southerly. They're turning around south to southeasterly this evening. Now the pattern for the next couple of days really looks to be relatively similar with a south to southeasterly airstream continuing, so that's going to keep those showers about the east south and central areas with fine or mostly fine conditions elsewhere. So Thursday showers about the east, south and central areas. Again on Friday and Saturday east, south and central areas, mainly fine elsewhere. Then on Sunday we start to see those showers finally petering out. So back to just a chance of a light shower on Sunday but looking like they will clear in the afternoon or evening. So similar couple of days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday with showers east, south and central petering out on Sunday. A lot of people are questioning us as to where summer is. Oh my goodness, I know. It's uh, sitting on about just 13 and a half degrees here in Hobart at the moment with those uh, southeasterly winds uh, on the opposite side of the, the state, if you like. Devonport's been up to 19 degrees there. So with that overland trajectory, that's where you're going to find the, uh, the warmer conditions today. A lot of people are also saying, why have I got my heater on? <laughs> Um. Oh, I know. <laughs> I I very uh, pathetically wore my beanie out to lunch. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh look, that's okay. I'll give you a pass mark for that. But thank you, thank you. Uh, warnings, have we got any? Yeah.
yeah, look, we've got a we've got a swag of warnings. Uh, look, on land, we do have a, a sheep graziers warning current for the Midlands, East Coast and South East Forecast Districts. We've got um, a, a number of flood warnings, a moderate flood warning for the South Esk River, a minor flood warning for the Macquarie and Coal Rivers, a generalised flood warning for the uh, Jordan River, and we've got a flood watch for the South East and Derwent catchments. Out on the waters, a, a gale warning is current for the North East and Coastal Waters from the northern tip of Flinders Island to Wine Class Bay. That includes Bank Strait and Franklin Sound, and that's for those southerly winds. We've got a strong wind warning current for all remaining western, northern and eastern Tasmanian coastal waters from low Rocky Point to Tasman Island and strong winds about Storm Bay as well. OK, so the coastal waters doesn't sound like the place you'd want to be at the moment. Yeah, look, generally speaking, south to southeasterly at 20 to 30 knots, although back to 20 to 25 knots in the south, but up to the 35 knots in the northeast where we've got those gales. So uh, seas generally two to three metres a little higher in the northeast. So looking at the... Uh the swell observations at the moment on the west of our state, Cape Sorrel, sitting up around about four metres, a maximum height of seven metres coming in from the west-southwest. On the other side of the island at, at Mariah Island, coming in from the south-southeast up to three metres at present, maximum height up around about four and a half to five metres. So look, uh, through the east, continuing at that southerly at two to three metres, through the west and south, that southwesterly three to four metres, and expect a westerly swell component of one to two metres across the north. Okay, have we done the wave riders? Yeah, I just did them then. Yeah, well, all go. good. I was distracted by I was distracted by the giving tree. We're up two hundred thousand five hundred and ninety nine dollars. How fabulous is that? Oh, what a commendable effort! Well done. <laughs> Thanks, Belinda. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a terrific effort. Uh, two hundred thousand five hundred and ninety nine dollars. Uh, fabulous. Uh, we started out the show today. Uh, just over 199199 if you remember. Uh, a couple of big anonymous donations, a $400 one and a $500 one. Thank you very much, anonymous. Uh, Christine, $50. Thank you, Christine. Richard, 100 And Margaret, $100 as well. And Heather, $50. Thank you kindly donating uh, that money towards the Giving Tree. And um, we'll wrap up the Giving Tree at the end of the week. So you still have plenty of time to uh, to donate. If, um, if you've got any spare cash, you can do it online, ABC Giving Tree. And as I say... That total, fantastic. It's just just a wonderful thing. Look, it's even gone up another $100, 200699 Well done. We shall talk about timber harvesting in just a moment. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Lord of the Flies. It was 30 boys. No parents were allowed. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. The island was practically deserted. The United States Marines were using it for artillery practice. But there was an abandoned concrete pineapple factory. That was where we lived. Now, action. Hear the latest conversations weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Yeah, still to come today, we'll look at the uh, goat meat market. Hasn't been the best for the last couple of months. And Richard Bailey, of course, with the livestock markets. And uh, we'll take it to the refurbished pulp mill in the northwest shortly. 
But it's well known the forests store and absorb carbon, but they're also an important resource for everyday products like toilet paper, tissues and building materials, of course. Some in the sector feel the industry is at a bit of a crossroads, especially when there's pressure to find nature-based solutions to climate change. Larissa Smith spoke to contract harvesters Lauren Carter and Jacob Hughes about future-proofing their business. Uh, so basically our business is a uh, first-generation forestry harvesting business. Uh, we specialise in the harvest of hardwood plantation across the northern regions of Tasmania. We employ some highly skilled individuals that are very specific to their roles and their skill sets. They know exactly what they're doing and how to protect and conserve and produce at the same time. These individuals have looked after the forest for a long period of time and made it a production zone, so retaining them is giving them a purpose and, um, and taking them along for the ride that's clearly a global movement. That, that the world needs and um, maintaining that balance of fibre demand and um, carbon strategy and, and what it means for the future. So really balancing that and making sure that, that our guys know exactly where they sit within that and that they still have a lot of external and internal value. Are they nervous about the future? Yes, yes, to be honest, yes, they are definitely nervous um, on what direction that we are heading because uh, it's such short term on our end of the spectrum. In, in where we sit in the supply chain, um, our work is, is short, so the continuation of contracts or, or longer contracts would give them a bit more security about where they're headed and then they can plan in their own personal life as well as we can plan as a business moving forward and make the correct decisions. Automation is uh, it's coming and it's going to come very quickly. Our employees are probably positioned perfectly for this because they're going to have the knowledge from the years that they've harvested wood up to now um, to be able to provide backup and support for these machines when they break down, what they need to do, what product they need to cut, how to get the machine to cut that product. How will automation make the job more efficient, the business more cost effective? So it takes a human element um, away from the process of uh, falling and cutting that log into product. The physical size of the machine and to look at the machine will look very similar, um, I believe. It just won't have a cab per se for an operator to sit in. So if people have an agricultural background, they've obviously seen autonomous tractors getting around with no cabs on, replaced with sensors and so on. Forestry machines will be um, pretty well the same. The, practice of what it does will be the same so the machine obviously has to look the same and it will evolve from there. Are these machines being used in America, in Europe, UK? Not yet, no it's it's all pretty new really um, so we can only go on things that we've, we read um, and what we research ourselves. We can plan to a certain extent and then we've got to make the leap. Does this make it a more of an, an attractive career pathway for someone looking at forestry? Absolutely. Um, the workforce is changing and the individuals that we're going to attract to the, the industry are going to be looking for different, um, different things to keep them there. So um, having autonomous machines and lots of data and analytics and coding is exactly where the education of today is, is placing the students. So we have to take comfort in the fact that schools are preparing these individuals for the next leap forward and innovation is leaping forward. Um, so, yeah, we take comfort in that, that there is preparedness there. It's just, it's just the application now and, and we can't get too tied up on what we see from a media standpoint because it is a populace at the moment to talk about it, but if it's at market and if it's readily available, that's what we 
on the ground need to know and at this point it's just not quite there. So is there a disconnect then between this insatiable appetite for timber as a building material right now and where that timber comes from because a lot of people in cities would just see logs on trucks and associate negativity with that in in some parts of the state. Absolutely I think as we've alluded to again today I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in regards to just uh, how much building materials yes there's our obvious visual aspect that we see daily but there's fibre in most things we are using at the moment so we're all consuming and we're all in this together and the solution is understanding and building that understanding to the, to the general public. So what is it that you want from some of these companies that you contract to? I would say instilling confidence in us that uh, given the right information and the right tools and metrics we will innovate inadvertently because we want to. We like to think that there's a lot of individuals uh, in the contracting sphere that are entrepreneurs by nature. They want to improve. So you don't have to drive that. You give them the information they need from a market standpoint, from a carbon standpoint, and then they will do with it exactly what they need. So make those directions clear and uh, make your intentions clear and and people will return with solution. So you're worried that these trees will be in the ground longer than the 25 to 30 years for making money in carbon credits and carbon trading. It would be wrong of us to say it's a concern because it doesn't it doesn't take away the global appetite for fibre and the need for a renewable resource. What it does is it changes our application. So we might need to buy machines in a couple of years that are thinning those bushes and maintaining those coops so that that larger stand resource can grow and prosper for these management companies. So we're not we're not scared of the future. We just want to flex with it and and having our application made clear to us the direction and and value adding and preserving that high quality product of longer rotations is where we want to focus. Can you see the business growing? Yes definitely definitely our our job as a harvest contractor is to or as the industry is to be able to provide um, a service that provides the highest value to that individual tree or stem that we grab hold of from the highest value butt log right down to the leaves that are dropping on the ground at the moment. There is, we could use them in so many different ways. Um, we're just not quite there yet. That's Jacob Hughes and Lauren Carter from Forest Contracting Company, JC Harvest, talking there to Larissa Smith about future-proofing their harvest business. A former pulp mill near Devonport is getting a second lease on life and not as a manufacturing hub as the developer who purchased it three years ago thought it might become, but as an agricultural centre. Meg Powell spoke to property developer, property developer at least, Tony Seymour, at the site. I'm a former accountant that uh, took a liking to buildings many years ago, and so I've been doing property development for probably 30 years. Now, we're standing on the site of the former Wesley Vale pulp mill. We've got the ocean in the distance, we've got trucks roaring past... You bought this in 2019, I understand? Yes, in March 2019. Why did you do such a thing? Uh, I had bought a few industrial properties before and I really liked the idea of repurposing buildings. Now, this was a, a site where there was buildings that had been left somewhat derelict for 10 years or so, a bit over a decade, but the potential was there, the structure of the buildings was there, uh, the roadworks, the infrastructure, the concrete, everything was here, it only needed dressing up again. It's a very well-known site among the community. When you bought it what did people say to you? Uh, Look it was overwhelming I'm from Launceston so I didn't have a lot of contacts local contacts in the Devonport La Trobe area but it's been overwhelming the support Uh, the council uh, quite a few of the individual businesses have all been very supportive Um, 
I, I've not found any obstacles in my way to trying to develop the site and everyone's welcomed it with open arms to see something resurrected again. Have you learnt much about the history of the place? Oh yeah, it's been a side benefit that I had no idea was going to happen. There's been probably 10, 15 people turn up over the, the journey of the last few years that worked here. Quite a few of them given me uh, photos, old black and white photos. We've retrieved uh, photos that were in the buildings. We've retrieved some of the machinery. So we're going to eventually, when we finish doing the building side, do an interpretive centre and put a lot of this stuff back into one of those buildings. So the larger buildings that we can see in the distance are probably 20 times the size of this building. Goodness, so there's plenty of scope for... Oh yes, most certainly. We've already got uh, six national companies here and four local companies that have taken up about 13,000 square metres of space. Now a few of those are agricultural companies. They're really driven by agriculture. Um, Costas, uh, Vizi, Simplot, Driscoll's, uh, Biomar were here for storage. Uh, we've got a few local uh, contractors, agricultural contractors like to store machinery, security and undershelter. And why, why has the agricultural community or business community taken to this site do you think? Uh, look I've no real idea why that theming happened I guess we're in an agricultural area I fully expected there to be more of the nature of um, contractors or people that were manufacturers we have two or three of those here we can hear one just in the distance now <laughs> um, they're the ones I thought would be here but as it's turned out it's been more of an agribusiness type theme. So it's getting a new life um, not as a manufacturing place per se but as an agricultural hub almost. Yes and the businesses that aren't straight directly agricultural are aligned to agriculture they're manufacturing things for the agricultural industry. XLD has taken over a building on this site what was it used for? Originally it was what was called the clay store and that stored all the clay that was the coating for the paper when they manufactured the paper they then put the clay on which gave it that glossy look for the woman's weekly magazine cover so this is what was in here. I had no idea. Clay was coated, used to coat paper. Yes. <laughs> Before plastic, I suppose. I guess so, yes. Uh, look, the site will be very interesting in the next few years, what develops out of it. At this point in time, I've no idea where we're quite going to finish, but it's been an exciting trip so far, so I imagine it'll continue. The owner of the former papermaking site at Wesleyvale, the pulp mill, Tony Seymour, talking to Meg Powell about how the place has been transformed into somewhat of an agricultural hub on our text line, Roger says Aussie lobster men got to be one of the best docos on TV. Good on you, Roger. Yeah, they put up with a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. Um, and we've got Jen who says spare a thought for students on the windward bound ten day youth challenge sail training. Eek! This will be truly challenging. Thank you for that, Anne. And uh, good luck to the students on the windward bound with their ten days of sail training. Hope the seas aren't too rough for them. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Look at uh, livestock now and uh, the goat market first up. And while livestock prices in general have cooled as we head towards the Christmas break, why has goat meat been off the boil for months? In the past six months, the Australian goat meat market has seen a harsh downturn with carcass weight prices falling from 920 cents per kilo in June to 361 cents per kilo now in December, a drop of over 60%. Senior market analyst with Auctions Plus, Emma Fessy, explained to Alice Marshall the factors that have caused this drop and what it could signal for other markets like sheep and cattle. If we look into international markets, because the goat industry in Australia is quite a niche market and it's geared towards the international export market, so we've got 91% of all of our goat meat is heading overseas. 
57% of that is actually heading into the United States. And so quite a few of those headwinds caused by the drought in the United States, as well as a few macroeconomic pressures, has really caused um, the reduced consumer sentiment from our international markets, uh, which has sort of carried forward across into our prices and demand on a domestic level. Mm, Okay, so then how does the drought impact our Australian market? So the US drought basically the past six to 12 months that we've seen some record um, cow slaughter rates come through in the US. So the August numbers across the US have seen their cow slaughter sit 20% higher than in 2021, which essentially that means that they've got a lot of cold red meat in storage. And it's the kind of draw, like the drawback of that is they've got, uh, they're lowering their prices on a retail level, which is then pushing back the demand for goat meat because it is that niche protein. um, And it's kind of the first one that, will take a bit of a knock when the prices of beef and lamb take a hit on the retail level. So looking at this pretty dramatic six-month downturn in goat prices, is there any warnings that other markets like maybe sheep or cattle can take away from what we're seeing at the goat market at the moment? Essentially, we both know that the cattle herd and sheep flock have been in expansionary phases with additional production forecasts to hit the markets in 2023. And so if we look into the economic conditions and consumer sentiment in the overseas markets, which are expected to toughen and tighten across 2023, the outlook of Australian livestock prices is going to look a little bit tougher Um, coming into 2023 and moving forward. And currently we've seen goat prices begin to slip back and that's been followed by a reduction in the um, Eastern Young Cattle Indicator. So I guess uh, to reinforce that canary in the coal mine metaphor, we're seeing that reduced consumer sentiment combined with the headwinds from economic conditions and overseas markets. And that's facilitated the decline in goat prices, both online on options plus and over the hooks. Um, And I guess further to this, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicators recently registered significant declines with some of the prices closing at 869 cents. So that was on the 5th of December. And that was 22% lower year on year and 15% lower than the same time in November. So I guess while there are a multitude of factors which are influencing the price performance, um, there's market drivers which impact one livestock commodity are pretty much certain to impact the others just at differing magnitudes. Do you think that until there is a bit of a a shift out of drought in the US that that goat market will continue to go downwards? Um, I'd like to think that we've pretty much found the floor in the market at the moment. But again, we're still seeing reduced clearances, reduced throughput on auctions plus, for example. So if we're looking at our goat listings in November across auctions plus, we actually saw a 73% reduction in goat listings from November in 2021 and earlier in the year for the first three months of 2021 we actually saw um, three back-to-back months of record online listings so they were sitting 115 percent higher than the same period in 2021 and i was out speaking in Longreach at a uh, red meat meetup conference and the consumer sentiment around there was really positive and the goat market was, you know, pushing up into those highs that we spoke about with the 920 cents per kilo. So I think the past conditions that we've seen in the recent months have been driven by the 
the export market and as well as the rising interest rates and struggle for labour. So we can hope that consumer sentiment improves and the demand begins to see an uptick. Emma Fessy, a senior analyst with Auctions Plus, talking to Alice Marshall about the decline in the price of goat meat, down 60% since June. Okay, so we know what's happening with goat meat prices. What about uh, the livestock markets involving cattle and sheep and lambs? Let's uh, find out with Richard Bailey. How are you going, Richard? Going well, Tony. Going well. It's a little interesting... bit of moisture around in places. So a couple of big storms up here on Monday and... I think you had a bit of rain last night, eh? Yeah, certainly did. Yeah, it's been interesting weather. I think everyone's been talking about the weather. Is that the, the go at the sale yards? Yeah, to an extent. Yeah, definitely. We, I don't know. We, we might be a bit soft, but we've had our heaters on the last couple of nights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Me, don't, don't tell anyone. Me too. <laughs> we, we've got into the middle of December, so um, <laughs> it's having a little bit of an effect on some of the on the way some of the stock are doing, I think. Um, but anyway, that's the way it is. Okay. How was the cattle market at Power Renner? Yeah, we had uh, sort of similar types of numbers, uh, 64 trade and grown cattle yesterday, some pretty good yearlings, and they sold pretty well. Yearling steers anywhere from 4.22 to 4.38 cents a kilo, and heifers 4.20 to 4.54 cents a kilo. Just a few went to restockers. Most of them went to butchers. Um, over in grown steers, they they made anywhere. The big heavy uh, bullocks made 356 cents, and they were heavy. And then you had some other grown steers in that sort of 370, 380 bracket. Most of the cows, the better cows, made 308 to 324, and then there were restock of cows that made 270 to 300 cents a kilo, and just a few bulls made three, uh, 234 to 248 cents a kilo. Okay, so we've got the Christmas season coming up. Uh, there's a sale next week? There's a sale next week, um, and then we miss the weekend, the week between Christmas and New Year, and uh, we'll make a decision getting closer to that, whether we do the first sale back. Notoriously, the first sale back has been very low numbers, so we'll see where we're going there. Then we'll go ahead from there. Okay. 2023 already. Hmm. Yep. Uh, lamb and sheep market, what's happening there? Yeah, very, very small numbers all around here. Uh, 1,238 lambs, of which there are quite a few, not those small lambs, we're not those very small lambs we had last week, but a lot of lambs are going back to the paddock out of those. Uh, really, there are only a few butchers and uh, one processor, well, two processors to an extent in the market. Uh, it meant that your best uh, lambs made anywhere from 170 to $186. Trade lambs 144 to 174. Light trade 134 to 136. They're all to kill. And then restockers bought light trade lambs from 88 to 130. dollars. They did pay up to $140 for a few better lambs. Um, then uh, light lambs anywhere from 66 to 98 dollars a head. Those lambs are a bit cheaper than they've been. Uh, five to ten dollars cheaper than they've been for a little while. Just a few, there are a few about, and we've got Oaklands tomorrow, Tony, where there'll be a fair lineup of, uh, of store lambs, and I think probably the store buyers are probably waiting to see if they can pick up some decent lines down there. That's an 11 o'clock start. Over in the mutton yard, there are only 121 mutton after the last couple of weeks of pretty poor prices, so not really a good market to take heat of. Uh, but generally speaking, it was a little bit stronger. It meant that most sheep made anywhere from 56 to $80 a head. 
Okay. All right, we might check that Oatlands market when we talk on Friday along with the mainland markets. We will. Yeah, Livestock Reporter Richard Barney back with us on Friday on the country. And plenty to talk about as we near the end of 2022. Yeah, a couple of weeks away. 2023 will be in. By the way, just before we go, ABC Giving Tree Appeal, our total so far has reached 200,699. So keep going. We're uh, closing it off on Friday, I think it is. Uh, but uh, if you feel like um, donating, go to it, the ABC Giving Tree Appeal online. And also visit, uh, while you're online, our ABC Rural page or our ABC Rural Facebook page. Plenty of great stories there. And we'll catch you after midday tomorrow.